Good morning. This is Pastor Adam Eggleston with First Christian Church. We are so glad that you are able to join us this morning. I want to bring you in today uh, to something that our Wednesday night gathering has been doing that I wanted to be able to bring to this service. We've been um, studying this idea of generations and God being the same God today that he has always been. And so I want to start off with a question uh, for you to kind of ponder in your mind. It's the question, is it fair to say that the generations right now are divided? Is it fair to say that we don't always get along across generations or understand each other the way that we should? And so as a part of this, we took a look at what the generations are, what they're called, when they were born. Uh, we've kind of been doing this get to know each other a little bit better by um, looking at the major historical events in the lives of each generation that really shaped their worldview. Um, we're starting to look at the cultural stuff. So this past week, we looked at the movies that defined your generation. So just in case anybody needs a quick reminder, what we call the greatest generation or the GI generation are those born 1901 to 1927. And then we get the silent generation, which is 1928 to 1945. And then the baby boomers, many of us are familiar with that term uh, from 1946 to 1964. Then we get Generation X from 1965 to 1980, Millennials 1980 to 1995, and then this new Gen Z that we talk about was from 96 to 2011, and now we've started over at Generation Alpha, which is all those 2011 and on through today. So let's, let's understand a little bit about each other by taking a look. So that silent generation is also sometimes called the traditionalist or the builders. Um, as I said, these are the ones born before 1945. So they are coming of age. They are kids through the Great Depression um, and through World War II. But they're sometimes called the lucky few because they were too young to go fight in the war However, that doesn't mean that they were too young to escape the psychological effects of growing up in that world. They also were shaped by uh, the Korean War, uh, witnessed the birth of rock and roll. Um, the movie that many people say defined their generation was Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean. And so all of those things, as they are coming into their own age, so their kids remembering the Great Depression and they're coming into becoming adults and trying to figure out how life works, how the world works, and all of that as they get ready to raise their own kids. And that's what's in the back of their mind. It's the Depression, World War II, all of that change. We move into the baby boomers. And um, as they're trying to figure out how the world works and um, come up with their uh, mindset of everything, uh, they have to witness um, JFK's assassination, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, Vietnam. All those things are playing out on TV in front of them. They would have witnessed the moon landing in real time. Um, they witnessed the civil rights movement, were quite possibly a part of it. Cuban Missile Crisis, Kent State, they were defined by Woodstock, need I say more, there. The movie that many would say defined their generation was Easy Rider as a metaphor for the hippies. Um, but you also get the good, the bad, and the ugly. You all are the Clint Eastwood, John Wayne uh, generation. You probably played cowboys and Indians out in the backyard as kids, and you know who Daniel Boone is, and 
um, all of that. And I think it's why you still, many of you watch Westerns uh, when you have the uh, option to do so. Um, you all also got Star Wars and Jaws and things like that. And then we move into Generation X, again, 65 to 80. Um, these are sometimes kind of an ignored uh, generation um, because so many people talk about the baby boomers and the millennials because we're such massive groups of people. And then Generation X is kind of just out there like, hey, we still exist. Um, don't forget about us. Uh, as they were trying to figure out their worldview, they were watching Watergate and the Iranian hostage crisis, the fall of the Berlin Wall, Desert Storm. They would have been kids when the Challenger disaster happened. Jonestown, Rodney King, Exxon Valdez, MTV, all those things shaped their worldview. Movies, they got The Breakfast Club. Uh, really shaping them, but they also got Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Top Gun, some really good things there. Now, millennials, these are my people, um, also called Generation Y, uh, because we are between X and Z, so it kind of makes sense. So this is 1980 to 1995. Um, as we are kids and young adults and trying to figure out our life, we had to uh, deal with Columbine, Oklahoma City, 9-11, um, Iraq and Afghanistan, we're the ones first figuring out uh, social media. We're the ones called digital natives because we're the first ones that just internet has uh, been so prevalent in our lives. Um, pretty much a lot of people agree that when you're trying to define where the end of millennials are and the beginning of Gen Z is, it's a matter of do you have a vivid memory of 9-11? If you do, you're a millennial. If you don't, you're Gen Z. You know, and our generation, the popular movies that kind of define who we were coming up was Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, The Fast and the Furious. And if you really need to understand us anymore, we are also the generation of Legally Blonde and Mean Girls. It is what it is. And then Gen Z. These are now people coming into being young adults. And for them, the really big defining thing so far is that diversity and technology are just givens for them. I mean, they're practically born with a cell phone in their hand. It's just always been a part of their lives. They don't remember a world before it. You know, whereas baby boomers had to fight through the civil rights movement, Gen Z does not remember a world before a black man was president. It's just these things have always been the way they were in their minds. They didn't have to watch the change over time play out. They're just born with technology and diversity and all the things that have been fought for for generations are just givens for them. In terms of movies, um, some would say that The Hunger Games was their defining one, which is kind of scary, kind of says a lot. Uh, they also get pretty much most of the Marvel superhero films, but if uh, their generation has this mindset of the Hunger Games, it's no wonder they need superheroes so bad. Um, and then Generation Alpha, I think it's still too early to have any idea what it is that's gonna shape their mindset, um, other than I think uh, the pandemic, COVID. Uh, many of these kids have had more years of school that were not normal than years that were normal. And that's going to have a huge impact as they go throughout their lives, as they try to understand the world. But the question becomes, if all those things separate the generations, 
You know, hopefully it helps us to kind of understand a little bit and bridge the gap and think through, oh, this is what this person went through. This is what this person went through. And that's not a means of uh, stereotyping or putting somebody in a box. It's just a little window into their world. But if all those things and so many more separate us, what will unite us? In other words, what do we have in common across all generations? And hopefully many of you are with me this morning that the Sunday school answer here, Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 13, 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's going to be that constant across all generations. And I tell you, the phrase that really got this into my head and that God has been drilling down to me um, with this idea of generations is this, the God of Jacob. Now, when we go back, we can see this play out many times throughout the scriptures when he refers to himself this way. Um, but I'm choosing specifically that time when Moses uh, sees the burning bush and he goes up to find out what's going on. And God speaks to him from the burning bush. And he says this twice throughout this interaction. But in this one, Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. God is a cross-generational God. He specifically wanted to be known as the God of our fathers, as the God who this generation worshipped, and this generation worshipped, and this generation worshipped. He specifically says to worship him as the same God as that of the ancestors who came before us. In assigning that own name to himself, I think that tells us something pretty big about something that's important to God, and that's being the God of all generations. So how do we make sure he continues to be the God of all generations? Again here, simple answer, together. Together. We've got to do this together. The only way we will get where we want to go is if we focus on we, not on me. Let's use this passage out of Hebrews chapter 10 to illustrate this point with a couple of things that happen when we come to Jesus. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 10, uh, let's start with verses 19 through 22, where uh, they say, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So pay attention here to a couple of things that the writer of Hebrews says. When we come to Jesus, the first thing is he allows me to approach he. And I realize that's bad grammar, but we're really going to kind of rhyme this thing with he, me, and we. So just hang in there with me. But he allows me to approach he. So many religions around the world, and even kind of the God of the Old Testament, it was this very distant God. Um, so many people still believe that there is this distant being that we have to worship from afar. We are not allowed to come anywhere near him. You know, the Old Testament, it's that the most holy place that was just mentioned. There was literally a curtain between where God was supposed to be and where we were supposed to be, and we could not pass between that until Jesus. 
So many gods were separate from their people. But then Jesus comes saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The next thing he does, once we come to Jesus and he lets us come to him, is he cleanses us. The rest of that Hebrews passage was talking about how he washes us clean. All of our sins, all of the debts we owed, all of the guilty conscience, all of the things that just weigh us down, hold us back, and keep us separated from God are now gone. They are washed away. When we pick up in that next verse of Hebrews, it says, Let us... Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you, and it's very much a plural you, not a finger point at one of us, it's the all y'all as all y'all see the day approaching. See, when we come to Jesus, he allows us to approach him. He, clean, he cleans us up from all of the mess in our lives. And then he leads me to we. He leads us to this fellowship of believers, this whole body of believers, because he knows that our souls desperately desire and crave and just absolutely need community. He knows that we thrive when we reach out across um, this body of believers and we build each other up to become what we are called to be. And the other day when I was driving down the road and I was thinking about this, I got to thinking about this in terms of the trees. How often do we see a tree that just shoots straight up with no branches and no leaves? If you do see that, you automatically know that that tree is dying or dead, okay? If a tree is going to be alive, yes, number one, it is growing down. It is putting its roots in something solid. As we do that as Christians, we are putting ourselves firmly planted in the word of God. But the other part, for that tree to really grow and become everything it can be and be the beautiful thing that we admire, it has to reach out with branches and up at the same time, the vertical and the horizontal. Every tree you see, it is reaching out, trying to connect to all the sources of light it can see. And there's a big lesson for us in that. So what leads to that kind of unity? Um, one of the authors and pastors that I've listened to a lot in the past, um, we've used his materials here for different classes, his books, all of that. Uh, he, his name is Francis Chan, and he, a couple years back, wrote a book exactly on this thing about what it takes to get to this uncommon unity that is supposed to set the body of believers apart. So I want to look at a couple of the things he said, kind of um, echo them with some scripture, and take a look at what we need to be doing to get to that point. He said there is a beautiful, God-honoring unity that can and must take place between weaker and stronger, newer and older believers. This unity must be fought for, and the result will be a wonderful mutual upbringing, upbuilding. Exactly what we are saying in that Hebrews passage. 
that mutual upbuilding that comes from having this fellowship. Paul echoes this over in Titus chapter 3, verse 9. He says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Now, both Francis Chan and Paul kind of make this caveat saying this doesn't mean that we um, don't find times where we have to argue over something. Very much, they say there are these people who will truly not be following Jesus the way they are supposed to, and we are never to lower the bar of expectations on what it means to follow Jesus just to not ruffle feathers and keep the peace and the unity. No, 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 no. We very much need to lovingly approach that person and try to bring them up to where we are. There will be those times we have to disagree. But unity through love is going to get us so much farther. Chan also said we need to keep our eyes on the mission and realize we need each other if we're going to pull this off. Paul over in 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Too often we, we let all these divisions and um, distinctions and disagreements get in the way of what we're called to do. We lose track of of the mission. One more quote from Chan here. He says, too often we fixate on our disagreements and we feel like we can't worship with such big elephants in the room. We don't see that God is infinitely bigger than our elephants. And so a plea I would make to you this morning it's got to be one of the oddest points I've ever put in a sermon, and that's really saying something for me. But nonetheless, the plea is, let the elephants go. Let the elephants go. Whatever they are, whatever keeps you separated from the other groups of people within the fellowship of believers, let them go. Paul says over in Colossians 3, 13 and 14, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And forgive as the Lord forgave you. I know that that is a very tall order, but it's echoing the very thing that Jesus said when his disciples came to him and said, our prayers don't look like yours. Can you help us? Teach us. What are we doing wrong? Teach us to pray. And he says, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And even Jesus goes on to say, forgive, because if you are not forgiving, God will not forgive. Forgiveness for us, I would say, starts with loving that person more. By loving that person more. Maybe you're not to a point where you're ready to say you are forgiven, we can move on. And remember, forgiveness is a choice to not let that thing affect your view of that person. 
It's not an erasing of the hurt. It's not saying, oh, it's okay, no harm done. It's not ignoring the justice that needs to come from it, but it's a choice to not let that define the way you treat the person. So forgiveness starts with loving that person more. If you're not to a point where you're able to forgive someone, start praying for God to show you how to love them more. And as you start to love them better and you start to try to show that in various ways, God will allow you to forgive more and more of what happened. Jesus said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now this Hebrews passage always calls to me this illustration I heard one time because it involves my favorite TV show and one of my favorite lines. I've got this like printed on my computer and it's just kind of a motto that at this point I have come to understand as the perfect metaphor for how the church needs to be. The TV show is lost. Uh, it's been off the air for over a decade now, but it's still one of my favorites. And there was this great line that happened just a few episodes in. It was live together, die alone. You know, on the TV show, there's plane crash on an island, all kinds of weird, all kinds of dangers. But the one thing that they realize at some point very early on is that they've got to come together, put their disagreements aside, and live together or they're going to die alone. And both spiritually speaking and you know, physically as the church, it's the same thing for us. If we want to thrive and survive as a church and reach people with the mission, the gospel, the way we are called to, then we have to do it together. We have to live together. But if we let ourselves go into all these little um, clusters and segments and be divided by this, divided by that, Gen Z, Gen X, millennial, baby boomer, all that, if we let those types of things divide us instead of coming across the lines with this uncommon unity, if we leave ourselves out there alone, we're going to wither and die alone. Spiritually, we have no other options. Spiritually, we need to live together or die alone. As a body of believers, we need to live together or we will die alone. So what do we do with that? As I was processing kind of through, now that we understand, now that we've taken a look at, there is this problem, division. Oftentimes, it can be because of age. There are lots of things that divide us. Let's not, you know, let's not hesitate to acknowledge that. But often it can be a generational divide that we've got to overcome. And so once we understand that there is this division, here are some of the things that help us understand each other better. Here's what we have to get to. Then it's a question of how do we do this? And so I was trying to think, if I wanted to give a piece of advice to each generation about what to do, what would I tell you? And so I want to give you a few ideas. None of this is an exhaustive list by any means. Each generation, I believe, is you know, perfectly situated where God wants you and where God can use you. Each generation and each person specifically has a set of gifts and skills and talents and so many things to offer to everybody else. So this is just a starting point. If you're in the silent generation, 
Stop being silent. Talk. Tell us your stories. We have a lot to learn from you. Baby boomers. You're often the ones in leadership now. So lead us. Give us a chance. Many of the younger generations would say, ask us questions and be willing to actually listen. I'd say mentor us. The younger generations are desperately missing mentors. We need it. Gen X. As that kind of forgotten generation because you're stuck in the middle, own up to being in the middle and be a bridge. Glean wisdom from one side and share it with the other. Be a peacemaker. Millennials, my side, my people. Got this idea, build them what you wish you had and ask both sides to help. I don't know what you grew up with. Um, I, I know what I grew up with and not that any of it was bad, but I think all of us have those things that we can think back and, and we just have that idea of, man, if I had had this in my life or if somebody had said this for me or somebody had done this for me, I would have started 10 steps closer to Jesus. Whatever that thing is, well, let's build it for the ones coming up. Let's give them that 10-step head start. Let's ask both sides to help. Gen Z, heaven help us. You are the generation that is rising up to lead the church. Get ready. Ask questions. Start to prepare yourselves now for that. And if somehow we have any of Generation Alpha listening in this morning, I would tell you to pay attention to good examples and recognize the bad ones. If you can do that, you will be starting out ahead of many of us. One more piece of advice and question together on this. As I was thinking about how to challenge these younger ones, I got to thinking about it in terms of Jesus and age. And in terms of what he accomplished. And so I challenged with this idea the other night, and I will challenge you all as well, that by the time Jesus was my age, well, he'd been dead and resurrected four years already, and had went back to heaven and left the church to a bunch of teenagers and 20-somethings. So the challenge for the younger ones is, what are you doing with that? What are you doing with what you've been given? The challenge for the ones that are older is to think about what are we giving to them? What are we leaving to them? What are we handing off now to prepare them for that? Because at some point, each generation leaves the church to the next generation. What are we leaving them? So I've been trying to give them each week kind of a, an assignment, a challenge. And I'll offer that to you as well. Take an opportunity to talk to one person in each of three other generations about your faith. Now, if that's, you know, if you're in the car and you got somebody with you, talk to them. 
call a grandkid up, say, hey, you got a few minutes, I got something on my heart. I wanna tell you this story. Take your kids or your parents out for lunch and ask some questions. Find ways to talk across the generations, understand each other, build relationships. Let's pray over that. Father, we are so grateful for this day. We thank you for everything you continue to bless us with. I just pray that everything we are doing here brings glory to you and that it unites people. Um, I pray that everything we do helps to further your kingdom. I pray that you will help people to see their differences, not as things that need to divide us, but as opportunities. That each generation was uniquely taught something through their experience that we can all learn from. We're never too old to learn. We're never too young to learn. Help us to bridge gaps, uh, to just come together as one body of believers united in thought and mind and in mission. Because once we get all that in order, once we've come to you, you've cleaned us up, you've put us in this body of believers, when we get ourselves together, that's when we go out as the church you called us to be. That's where real world change happens. We thank you most of all for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.